everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and it's a deep dive week here at Cycling Tips. If you've got a decent chunk of change to spend on a higher-end drop bar bike, there's a wealth of options out there. Arguably too many, in fact. So given that ultra-competitive environment, why on earth would anyone think it's a good idea to start up yet another brand? But let's just say someone was actually crazy enough to do just that. What would it need to be? How would it need to set itself apart? And are we talking just about the product or is the company itself also important? Stuff like where it's based, who's behind it, where it's making stuff, and so on. Those are the sorts of questions I asked myself when I first heard about Bridge Bikeworks, an upstart company based in Toronto, Canada. They've got just one bike right now, the Surveyor. It's a carbon fiber all-road bike that's not only designed to be someone's only drop bar bike, but one that's also fully manufactured in Toronto, not just designed and engineered there. But is that enough to really make a dent in this market? To find out more, I chatted with the co-founders of the company, Mike Yakubovich and Frank Gardner, to see what they had to say. Is Bridge going to make it? Way too early to say, but the story behind the brand is still pretty interesting nonetheless. Let's take a listen. Uh, Mike and Frank, thanks so much for being on Nerd Alert with us today. Thanks, James. Super excited to be here. Yeah, thanks, James. Much appreciated. Uh, before we dive into uh, the bike and, and some of the other stuff too much, uh, I first want to get a little bit of info on your individual backgrounds. So, uh, Mike, I've known you for a little while now. Frank, I've, uh, this is really the first time that you and I have spoken. Um, so I kind of want to get an idea of, I guess, kind of how you got to this point And, well, yeah, how we got to this point. And then we'll ask why the heck you decided to get into the bike business. Yeah, well, uh, good questions. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess my background... Uh, has largely been in manufacturing uh, sporting good products for the most part uh, right here in Toronto. So we're based in, in Canada, in Ontario, and in, in, in Toronto. Uh, and so I've spent the majority of my career starting companies, uh, developing products, and making them here locally. Uh, so that started a bit over 10 years ago. Uh, so one of my first companies was actually called Trigger Tech. We made uh, triggers actually for firearms and crossbows. Uh, there's a unique system that we patented uh, and grew rapidly. And actually in 2020, the company was uh, one of the fastest growing companies or manufacturing companies rather uh, in Canada. Uh, and from there, I wanted to try something new and I jumped in and launched a company uh, called Carbon Marine, uh, where we built fully carbon fiber power boats. And so I got a very, very deep dive uh, into how to structure a facility, how, what the process is, how to work with prepreg. Uh, and then after that, I really wanted to dig into something that I deeply cared about, uh, kind of round it out and, and care about the product that we actually made in, in terms of an end user. Uh, wasn't a shooter, wasn't a fast boat driver, and, and was, was uh, an avid cyclist and still am. Uh, and so started thinking about my metal experience and composites experience and, and wanted to apply it to, to bikes and, and just doing a, a quick research, I realized that there was nobody in Canada uh, making carbon fiber bikes. And, and that alone was enough for me to say, hey, I think there's something here. And at that time, being a longtime uh, friend and customer of, of Mike's, uh, basically knocked on his door and said, hey, man, like I've been thinking about, about doing this. Uh, what do you think? Uh, and I guess that's how... That's how him and I connected on it, and Mike can tell you his portion of that. All right, so so Frank, just to be clear, uh, you don't you're not a trained engineer, correct? Correct. So how? I mean, before we even get into the bike thing, like how did you end up doing either of those two things that you were involved with? 
Uh, honestly, it was really just uh, the drive to do to make things. I would say, like I, I was always passionate as a kid and, and throughout university of just just making things, uh, whether that's that's organizing events or or actually just making projects or whatnot. Uh, and that's always uh, been a part of me. And and when I got out of university, I, I just wanted to make. Uh, make products and make businesses. And I didn't know how to do that uh, really at all. Uh, so I just hunted down a, a startup at that time that was, you know, at the very, very beginning and basically went to the co-founder uh, and said, look, I'll, I want to learn how to, this is done. Uh, you can pay me whatever you want uh, for six months. Basically, I want to prove myself. I want to learn. Uh, and that's kind of how I got into it. And that was a very uh, a clean tech company uh, at that time. And, and he was a, just a great mentor, taught me everything about uh, startups, fundraising, uh, everything. And then I ended up actually managing the engineering team, which is at the time there was about 10 or 15 uh, very high level engineers at the time. And, and I started managing the product development side and just kind of fell in love with it and, and uh, kind of School of Hard Knocks uh, grew from there, and, and by no means you would not want me designing uh, anything or or engineering anything, but uh, you know I've I've learned enough to ask the right questions, I guess. Perfect. Well, we're gonna get to that in just a second because my understanding is you have a master's in philosophy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so kids listening at home, if you're currently pursuing a degree in philosophy and your parents are telling you that there's no future in it. Let, let this, well, I guess this depends on if Bridge Bike Works is successful, is successful but uh, let, let Frank stand as your example that there is a possibility to get an <laughs> advanced degree in philosophy and make money. So, all right. Anyway. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, let's, let's get to you. So, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I've kind of known you and seen you on and off, at least at, certainly at, at various shows and whatnot for a, a, multiple years at this point. Um, and my kind of understanding with this is you're basically like sort of the bike guy, essentially. So what what is your background here, and how did this come? How did you come to be involved in Bridge? Sure. Um, well, like Frank, um, I've got some degrees I'm no longer using. Um, I was actually uh, an urban planner and a lawyer uh, coming out of school. Did that for a few years. Um, loved urban planning. Didn't like being a lawyer. Um, so about 12 years ago, uh, left the practice and decided um, at the time, I'd say somewhat foolishly, that I would, wanted to open my own bike shop and, uh, and my own distribution company. And that really stemmed from being obsessed with bikes since I was 15 years old, uh, riding road bikes, working on them in my basement, uh, usually riding obscure European brands that nobody in North America sold. Um, and so really it was kind of a, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. And I looked around, uh, <laughs> Toronto and North America and just said, you know, there's not a lot of bike shops that are the kind of places that I would want to shop. And so I started blacksmith and really the focus was to, uh, work on, uh, bespoke kind of builds. So focus on hand-built, uh, frame builders, and smaller, more independent brands. So no, no big guys, no specialized Trek, Cannondale, Giant. Uh, my shop always focused on kind of more obscure brands. And after a few years, we started focusing much more on hand-built and, and custom designs. So working with, you know, a lot of premium, uh, smaller builders, Mosaic, Fesca, Bastion, 
those kinds of brands. And in addition, you know, servicing and selling race bikes, you know, we've seen thousands of specialized in canyons and giants come through the shop over the years. Um, and, uh, and working with a lot of those hand-built brands uh, kind of got me excited on the design side because we, we collaborated with some of those builders to create new models, uh, to make design changes to existing models based on what our customers were asking for. And, and also because a lot of those bike builders do custom geometries, uh, basically I ended up designing bikes for hundreds of customers along with those builders. So actually doing fittings, CAD drawings, custom geometries, and then getting customers on the road and actually getting feedback on the work we had done. So, uh, so definitely uh, it's been an amazing experience and, and feel like uh, I've learned a ton and, and have a unique kind of situation where I get anecdotal data from thousands of customers about what they're looking for, what kind of bikes people want to ride, uh, you know, every category, whether you're talking about tire clearance or the kind of bike uh, design mentality, you know, we get tons of feedback from our customers. And, um, you know, I had had a few opportunities over the years to uh, get involved with bike brands um, and never really found the right fit. Always imagined that if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it myself and, and really have control, but was also maybe uh, humble enough to realize that the things Frank was talking about, uh, experience in startups, entrepreneurship, manufacturing, engineering, was not where I had had a ton of experience and, and would have never undertaken this on my own. But the more Frank and I kind of talked over beers and coffees and some late nights, we sort of realized that we thought we were a really good team together, that, you know, I've got kind of the industry and design and, and, uh, kind of customer experience side pretty understood. And Frank had the kind of business building manufacturing startup side in terms of his experiences. And uh, I guess that's kind of how it all started is, you know, imagining if we started with a clean slate and could build the company with no restrictions and the way we wanted to, that we could create bikes in North America that rivaled production around the world, but at a price point that we were really proud at. And so that's, that's kind of how it all started. And uh, James, if there are any uh, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs listening, I would highly recommend starting a company with one of your customers uh, it, it, uh, or a customer because, uh, you know, Mike has been in the industry for ages and, and developing a product and, and a company with someone with his, his depth of knowledge is just hugely beneficial and uh, you get to you get to uh, sidestep a lot of potential uh, product development errors based on that. So big recommendation there. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, so essentially, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, so Frank, you have the experience in uh, manufacturing and startups and that sort of thing. Uh, Mike, you're, again, like kind of like lifelong bike guy uh, experience uh, outside of the bike industry quite a while ago, but you... You've had this shop Blacksmith for uh, the last twelve years. Is that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, Something that's like right. That? Um, mm -hmm. and, and and Blacksmith is still running, correct? Correct. Yeah. So Blacksmith and Bridge are totally separate. Um, Blacksmith is still running. We will proudly be a Bridge dealer, um, but uh, yeah, separate entities. And so I kind of split my time as an employee between Blacksmith and Bridge. 
Um, but yeah, separate entities, obviously the experiences of blacksmith certainly, um, you know, are, are in our computations for bridge and, and help kind of inform our decisions. But, uh, but yes, separate entities entirely. Okay. Um, but essentially I would say starting up a bike brand, uh, and especially making them yourself in house. I mean, that's essentially the, the dream, right? Like that's, it's really what everyone who kind of wants to be in the bike business, a lot of them, like that's what you want to do, right? Like that's like kind of like the pinnacle. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the dream. I don't think I ever imagined a way to get there five or 10 years ago. And, uh, and Frank and I kind of diving into the project, we realized that, uh, we thought we could do it together. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me ask you this first. Um, and I'm, I'm going to guess that you've probably asked yourself this question probably multiple times. Um, so we'll get to the bike itself and some details on that in just a minute. But, uh, as far as bridge, the company goes, I mean, there are like a billion different options right now for higher end carbon drop bar frame sets these days. Um, why on earth would it seem like a good idea to start up another one? Like at what point did this seem like this would be a really good idea? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that is a, that is a, a very apt question. One that, uh, I know I for, for, for certain rattled around in my brain for, for quite some time. And, and Mike and I were, were wondering, you know, what, what we're doing and are we full crazy or half crazy or, or, or just normal crazy. Um, and we still don't know the answer to those questions, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, for us in doing our research and talking to our potential customers, it was really came down to what is the one thing that you could do that's unique. That's not just adding to the noise uh, of, like you say, like the, the hundreds or whatever, however many numbers of drop bar bikes there are, um, you know, what is, what is unique? And, and to us, that answer was starting from the very bottom and building to the very top. And, that is the one unique, very unique factor aside from obviously uh, unique characteristics of our product. But the big unique factor for us is, you know, we do our, we make our own tools. We have our own in-house engineer. We have our own in-house designers. Uh, we've got a mill machine. Uh, we've got our own freezer where we get our, we keep our pre-preg. We set up our own processes. We've got a clean room, but we got like, literally we control every single aspect of how the bike is built. And for us in understanding the industry as much as, as at least I do at this point, uh, that is unique in and of itself. And, and, you know, we obsess here at bridge over quality control. Um, as mentioned, we've got, or, or as we can chat about later, we've got some top end, uh, talent on that side of things, but from the get go, it was, how do we build the best facility possible? How do we, uh, get the common processes of making hollow carbon parts uh, set up properly in the facility? Uh, and how do we make sure that we uh, control every single process from, from the start? And literally, we probably spent just as much time engineering the inside of our bike as we did the outside, um, which was a very unique experience for a lot of people because most, you know, the common is to just say, hey, here's the A side, ship it overseas and somebody else that you don't even know uh, does everything else in order to make the bike. So sometimes, you know, engineers who design the bike don't even know how it's built and or what's inside of it. Whereas for us, we've spent so much time making sure that the inside of our bike is manufacturable because we're making it all. Uh, and because we are local, we can't just throw, uh, you know, a hundred people at it 
obviously exaggerating, but we just can't, you know, throw a ton, a ton of labor at it to fix the problem down the line. We have to make sure it's absolutely perfect to start. Um, and so that was a big learning experience for us as to how much we had to look at the inside and make sure that everything was designed in a way that fit our manufacturing uh, processes. Um, anyways, I'm going deeper into manufacturing there, but I would, I would say, you know, we, we both had a deep passion for making things here and we thought that was a, a very unique side of things. Um, and if I could add one more, one more thing, uh, is it was our deep belief in this. We, we did start before, like right before COVID hit, uh, we started this and then COVID hit and we were like, oh man, um, well, what's going to happen now? Uh, we kind of thought it was toast really. I mean, you know, who, who could get funding for a startup during that time that uh, all of the factors. And so we kind of just sat on it for probably like a week and a half, two weeks. And then all of a sudden the bike boom hit and everyone was interested in, in bikes and everyone was interested in, you know, why is there a supply chain issue and where are people getting their stuff from? And then the acceleration uh, of people's expectations to want something local uh, that we thought would come in five years or something was all of a sudden right there. And then, uh, and so we just turned on the jets and, 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 and built her up from there. Uh, and we do believe that that, you know, our tagline is authentic full cycle. And what that means is everything that I just said, we build from the bottom up. We've got our hands on, on the entire cycle of what this bike is going through, but it's also on the community side. Uh, you know, we have a ton, a ton of people out there wearing hats with logos on it. And clearly I don't mean to disrespect any other brand whatsoever, uh, but you know, they're kind of supporting a business that a lot, you know, a good portion of their balance sheet is across seas and not where they are. And we think that there's a, a uh, an intangible benefit that once they put on or ride our bike or put on our logo and realize that it's right here, man, this is cool. Like they might go and ride with someone that built their bike. Uh, we think that there'll be a big intangible uptick for us on, uh, you know, once they kind of feel that full cycle of, of brand support. I mean, I think they, this sort of like that local pride thing certainly it hits home for a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm based here in Colorado. Um, like Yeti is a really well-known mountain bike brand and despite the fact that Yetis are not actually made here in Colorado, there's certainly a massive community of people who are super into Yeti because of the whole like Colorado vibe. Um, and again, that's just because the company's based here, was founded here, that sort of thing. Um, so I would, I would have to imagine, I mean, Toronto is a pretty good hotbed for cycling that there's a, certainly at least to get started, there's a, there's a good contingent of customers that are out there that would be really stoked to ride something that's made there. Um, and so I think the idea of this certainly holds a lot of merit. Um, and it sounds like the timing was quite fortuitous. Certainly, again, like you said, Frank, with the whole supply chain thing and kind of um, not even so much having it built in Toronto specifically or in, even in Canada, but just having everything be localized and kind of in-house. Um, I think that certainly has a lot of appeal for people. But th this is still something that you obviously had to sell to, to other people to form the company. Because again, um, you know, Frank, you said you do have uh, some background in composites manufacturing. Um, Mike, you're not really like, you don't have like hands-on experience necessarily in making carbon bikes. Um, but so you obviously had to assemble a team, uh, to make this whole thing happen. And you, you've put some pretty heavy hitters on your roster here. So how did you manage to bring those guys on? Yeah. I mean, I guess this might be, a um, a few points to that answer, I guess. I, I think the first point is always a bit of luck and, and, and a bit of timing, which I, which always helps. Uh, and then obviously it's taking advantage of that, 
that opportunity. So, um, Cervelo is a, was a Toronto based company and, and they'd recently, recently made some, some moves and a lot of their technical people were actually, uh, out of work, uh, and, or in, in other jobs that they wanted to get back into the cycling industry. Uh, and that really, that timing just matched up. So there's that luck aspect is the fact that the talent was actually there. Um, so that was a huge, huge opportunity. And then the second factor was, uh, I think both of the engineers that we have on, on staff were deeply passionate about hands-on work, uh, and were pushing very, very hard in their previous jobs to say, Hey, we should do this here or that here or that here. Um, and we're possibly, uh, you know, not allowed to do that for whatever reasons or whatever the business plans were that they're in. And so once they saw that a local company were basically starting up, uh, and as they say, was crazy enough to actually, uh, uh, do it locally, they were very attracted by that idea and, and it wasn't an easy choice for them. I mean, there was a lot of interviews, a lot of back and forth. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it was kind of a, this is, this is so damn cool. I wish I was doing this before and, and now, now I can do it now. So let, you know, let, let's, let's give this a go. And I think just to add my last quick point, James was, you know, hopefully it's, uh, that was on some level, uh, first vetting of the work Frank and, and myself had done over many months that, uh, you know, our engineers had really good questions about who we wanted to be as a bike brand, what we were focusing on. Uh, what the initial bike uh, was meant to be. Um, and so, you know, the fact that we did have really world-class uh, engineers decide to take the risk and jump on board with us, um, you know, was, it, was I guess, a, a nice pat in the back that we were, we were moving in a really good direction and uh, kind of our philosophy of what we wanted to build and kind of the authentic, authenticity of Bridge um, was something that our engineers you know, related to, and, and like Frank said, that we wanted to create a really kind of equitable space where, you know, these, these people that we're hiring, uh, we really want to kind of enable them to be uh, a really active part of the team to have their hands on all parts of the design and manufacturing process. So, you know, we're, it's not Frank and I telling a bunch of world-class engineers what to do, but it's, it's a really collaborative, amazing kind of work workplace where we all work together and it's sort of the best idea wins. It's not uh, that it has to come from the top. So, so I think that kind of uh, atmosphere was something that, that appealed to people. And, and so far it's been just an amazing work environment. And I sometimes pinch myself, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm talking to Richard Matthews, who's designed some of the best carbon bikes in the world about what we want our bike to be. And, uh, and, and so that's super exciting. And, and, and that's one of the small parts in terms of local uh, that we can sit down with our design, engineering, manufacturing teams in one room and talk about what our goals are, what our challenges are, that we're not going back and forth, you know, on Zoom calls or, or waiting to send out designs to another firm to get their feedback that we're able to iterate and, and kind of design at a really amazing pace by doing it all in-house. Right. Because I guess once you do come to that collective decision on some sort of change, you can essentially just walk out onto the shop floor and make it happen, right? Absolutely. Cutting our own tooling, uh, you know, whether it's revising laminate schedule, um, everything is, is really agile here. And, you know, this has been a, almost a three-year project and, you know, tens of thousands of hours of work have gone into our first bike. But, uh, but in terms of the pace of being able to 
take feedback or or ideas and and implement them uh we're we're able to you know compared to bigger brands that are outsourcing more we're able to really keep the pedal down cool well let's talk about this bike so right now uh you've started out with one bike model for now the surveyor uh what is this thing well i mean maybe i'll start more kind of high level um before i even talk about the the bike itself i mean I think, you know, one thing we're focusing on and thinking about the bike industry in general and, and my experience in my shop is we kind of saw this divide between your bigger brands who have, you know, tons of focus on engineering, product development, kind of a performance oriented approach. You know, most of them are sponsoring pro tour teams. Um, but then most of those products are made somewhere in Asia, China or Taiwan, um, and like Frank says, that kind of connection to the brand is, is, is less, um, is not as strong. And, and a lot of the production is happening in places that most of us don't have a connection to. Uh, and then maybe on the flip side, you know, I've worked with a lot of small hand-built bespoke brands that do incredible work in terms of quality control and a more artistic approach potentially, uh, to aesthetics, uh, and design, but often don't have that kind of uh, deep embedded engineering uh, to tie it all together. So we really thought that there was a gap between that kind of engineering and performance focus and a product that is still made by hand at an incredibly high level of quality and, uh, and attention to detail. And so really at its core you know, that's sort of our ethos in a nutshell is to combine world-class engineering with handmade quality. Um, and so that's sort of where we started in terms of what we thought the market was lacking. And, um, and essentially, you know, to try to really be a, an authentic, transparent brand that builds great products for its end users. We're not, we don't have a focus on sponsoring a pro tour team uh, or on do we need to get this UCI certified or, um, you know, really it's all about creating an incredible bike for the enthusiast who's going to buy it. So, uh, so that's essentially maybe what makes us a little bit different um, in terms of the bike itself. So it's called Surveyor. Um, it's really meant to be uh, the all road bike that we wanted. So again, if you look at the bigger brands, you've got their kind of pro tour race bike and then often a gravel bike. And um, for years I've been kind of smitten by bigger tire clearances. So I've been pushing my bike designs around bigger tire clearances for, for a number of years now. And so we really wanted to focus on, could we create uh, an agile performance oriented road bike that still had the tire clearance that made it suitable for a more versatile riding experience that I would say, you know, design a bike for the type of riding that the vast majority of us do, which is not, you're going to go race crits and nothing else on this, or you're going to go race hardcore gravel. Um, but something that could really potentially win Perry roubaix although we're never going to race Perry roubaix and also be raced at Unbound. And so the idea was really a bike that 
could handle 28 to 40 millimeter tire clearances. Uh, and that had features and geometry that made it suitable for a variety of riding styles. Um, so that, that really was the goal. I mean, the bike itself, I guess we tried to really combine cutting edge technology, but then also with some classic design features where we felt they were appropriate. So, you know, we've got a D-shaped aerodynamic down tube, a unique kind of offset bottom bracket, which keeps our chain stays really short for the tire clearance we have fully internal uh, cable routing for aerodynamics, and that's what customers are asking for. Um, but then on the flip side, some more what you'd call classic features. So round seat collar, no D-shaped seat post, uh, T47 bottom bracket. Our cockpit is reasonably non-proprietary, so you can run pretty much any bar stem on our bike. Um, and a classic silhouette, you know, no drop seat stays, no drop chain stays. Um, I'm, I have a personal vendetta against uh, wedge style uh, seat post clamps. Um, so again, because, uh, you know, we're not trying to follow trends just for the sake of it, we're able to kind of make every decision on the basis of, is this the right decision for the bike and for the customer? Um, we really are able to pick and choose, you know, what we think is uh, intelligent modern design and what we think is just trend chasing and something we're willing to to forego and and focus on a design that that we think is right. So um, so that you know that kind of combination of technology and kind of classic thinking is uh, is really kind of what we're all about. You know you know you mentioned you know we're starting with one bike. It's really an all road bike. Uh, again, meant to be. Uh, capable as a road race bike, uh, but also versatile as a light gravel bike. Um, you know, if you look at the bigger companies, again, they have most of those guys have a pure race bike in the lineup. And then often, you know, you look at someone like Trek, where you have the Amanda, the Domine, um, the Madone, you've got almost three versions of a race bike uh, that all do slightly different things. For us, we you know, we wanted to build something unique and that uh, wasn't necessarily firmly in an industry category, um, but that had kind of had the versatility from a number of those different models. So, you know, if, for, just as an example, I guess, you know, Specialized is an easy one um, because most people know them. They, they do create amazing product. You know, for us, we kind of looked at what we wanted to build and said, you know, can we have something that's kind of got the stiffness and performance of a race bike of, you know, a tarmac, uh, but then imbued with the ride quality and kind of more classic look of an ethos. And then because we're greedy, close to the tire clearance of a crux. And so trying to kind of get that, you know, if we threw a blanket over the best features of all of those bikes, that's really what we wanted to create, a, a true all-rounder um, that, you know, really starts with geometry. And we spent hundreds of hours just on, on the geometry of our bike in terms of handling, fit, uh, tire clearance, front center distance to ensure decent toe overlap room. Um, and then of course, things like tube shaping, aerodynamic considerations, ride quality considerations, but, Ultimately, our goal was to create uh, a bike with, with 
really no weaknesses, that something very versatile, very well-rounded that, you know, for the vast majority of the riding that even performance enthusiasts do um, would, would hit the mark. Um, and then, you know, I guess the softer um, factors uh, that we think are valuable, uh, things like a lifetime warranty, obviously North American made, um, we're looking at actually Cerakoting our frames in-house instead of using traditional paint. Um, so just always looking at what are, what's the most modern option, uh, what are, you know, what's the best way to build a bike, to paint a bike and, um, and ultimately designed with the end user in mind. So, you know, if we're right in our thinking, hopefully we'll look back in two or three years and see the surveyor as not this strange all road category that not a lot of folks are in, but my hunch is you're going to see the bigger brands moving towards road bikes with bigger tire clearances, um, slightly more versatile uh, platforms. And I think you're already seeing that with, with the tire clearances on, on road race bikes getting bigger. But we just really wanted to push that clearance beyond where others are going. And so we're officially saying we've got 40 millimeter tire clearance, uh, likely closer to 42 once we're really finished all our testing. Um, but, uh, but I guess that's kind of the bike in a nutshell is something that does everything well, um, with a really super high end attention to detail quality control. So like Frank said, we, we care that the inside of the bike, the wall thicknesses, all the little details are, are as perfect as they can be. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that does really set us apart from most small brands, most startups that we're putting in. Uh, an incredible amount of engineering work at the front end uh, to make sure the bike is as great as we want it to be. We, we know you only get one chance at a first impression and, and really expect the production bike to leave uh, our factory at really at an incredible level in terms of uh, workmanship. Cool. So it sounds like essentially what you're doing is you're not, you're not offering an N plus one bike. You're offering an N minus one bike essentially, or like this, like N, N, N equals surveyor bike. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think the idea, the idea of that sort of bike is, is really appealing right now to a lot of people. Um, especially I, I feel like, I, I feel like people have the general sense right now that they kind of want, they want to have fewer things that do more. Um, and for sure, I, I, I will agree, Mike, that there are, there are more bikes that are coming out onto the market, uh, even from major manufacturers that are kind of going after that idea in a lot of ways. Um, but looking at the surveyor specifically, um, I guess just to be clear to people listening, I mean, this isn't a fully custom bike in the sense that you can have like totally bespoke geometry, that sort of thing. So you do have set sizes, um, which makes me wonder then, um, given all the attention that you're saying that you're paying to how the bike is made and designed and the quality control, how exactly is this thing being made and what, what makes it different there? Yeah. The bike, um, manufacturing process, uh, is not in itself, uh, unique. It's, it's, it's a long time used, uh, uh, tried and tested, uh, in many, I guess, many other times and in many other uses. Uh, it's one of I would say the best methods for making uh, hollow carbon parts. Uh, I would say it's it's used, you know, combined with autoclaves and whatnot. But it's it's also used heavily in, in aerospace applications, and usually for very premium finishes. So so, and I guess to go backwards, we are using what's called a latex uh, bladder 
methodology. So we basically wrap our our carbon uh, around a mandrel, and the mandrel happens to be a bladder in this case. Uh, so once you wrap it around that that bladder, you put it into the tools that we've made. And you cook the part like that. So that that's a very tried and true and tested way of making very high quality parts. Uh, and usually it's on a, the lower volume scale. I mean, I don't mean onesie twosies, but it's usually done for people who are making uh, uh, decisions to focus deeply on the attention to detail and, and the part quality finish, which of course we are, uh, which the latex bladder just does exceptionally well. Um, and the big reason for that is, is what's called compaction. And again, going back to... Uh, how we focused on the inside of the bike, a lot of that was saying, okay, how will these bladders expand on the inside of the bike and push the outside towards the tool side? So the tool side is what gives you your, what we call A side, and that's what the customer looks at. So once you have that proper compaction from the inside against that tool surface, you get a, just a fantastic part. Um, the challenge there is to manufacture the inside of the bike so that bladder can expand uh, as you designed it to. So for us, we our first parts that we made, uh, we always cut apart, uh, which is kind of sad because uh, you make a part uh, and then uh, you got to cut it up and basically just see what it looks like on the inside. Uh, and we were just blown away. I mean, clearly the, the time and the effort that we put into the inside of the bike paid off because as soon as we cut those parts up, they were close to perfect. There's no voids whatsoever. Uh, the compaction where we needed them in the critical spots uh was perfect uh so it was, we were very very impressed with the the initial uh results um so so yeah i mean i guess in short there's there's not a crazy amount unique to our process with respect to to, to that uh other companies and especially across seas use or typically use uh basically a nylon bag over some form of of mandrel or preform um, we do that with some of our tubes, but we actually use 3D printed mandrels instead of some form of, of foam. So the 3D printed mandrels actually allow us to get almost the exact uh, dimensions of the inside of, of a tube, let's say. Uh, and the reasons why we use a nylon bag in that case is, is basically, uh, it's, it's one, it's, a, it's affordable, and two, it gets the job done. It's, it's a tube, it's not a complex uh, piece of geometry. Uh, so it allows us to, to, to do that in, in, in a cost-effective way. Um, but aside from that, uh, we use 3D printing almost all day. Our 3D printers are just going all the time. Uh, we probably saved, honestly, like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in development fees, or sorry, costs, uh, just using uh, 3D printers and making little jigs, making little fixtures. We make all of our mandrels on our 3D printer. printer uh, so it's just been... Uh, an immense amount of help on that side. And it's worth, maybe I'll just jump in quickly, James. Uh, like Frank says, on some level, what we're doing is a tried and true methodology. Um, but we didn't set out from the start and say, oh, we want to take a safe approach necessarily. Uh, we probably did about six months of engineering work that really didn't focus on the bike at all. It actually focused on our facility and uh, essentially carbon production methods. So we looked at all the different ways you can build a bike from, like Frank said, tried and true to more modern to super bleeding edge. Nobody's even doing this yet. Um, and really for us, it was a very complicated kind of, uh, I won't say cost benefit analysis. It was more uh, weighing all the factors. So stiffness, ride quality, um, manufacturability, uh, you touched on it. 
Uh, part of the reason we're building our bike in multiple parts is that we can expand the product range to offer full custom geometries in the future. So, uh, so that is in our, our line of sight for, uh, for the future, for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, generally tried and true, uh, but done at, a, at the most advanced level possible, uh, we, we ended up kind of zeroing in that we thought this was the best way to build a carbon bike. And, and you know, interestingly, just as a, you know, recent announcement, you saw Colnago um, move away from their lugged designs uh, with the new C68. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you, I know intricate details about how Colnago is building that bike, but generally they've moved towards a production method on that C68 that's very closely aligned with how we're building our bridge bikes. Yeah, so, it's fun. Uh, I mean, it's fundamentally very, very challenging to get a better quality part uh, than than latex bladder molding. Uh, it's very, very hard, and especially at scale. I mean, a lot of people will, will mention an autoclave, and, and we happen to have one, which is great. Uh, but that's usually for onesies, twosies, uh, and for anything that's kind of production related. Very, very challenging to get better than 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 using the latex bladder molding, and and again, that 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 has to go with how well that pushes the fabric against the mold, and and uh, and I guess you, there's some popular YouTube channels now that kind of cut bikes apart, and and most people listening to your podcast probably watch those as well, and and mostly they're pointing out voids and and uh, you know whatever excess bag that's left in there, or whatever it is, um, where latex bladder molding you don't get any like any of that, assuming you're doing it properly, of course. Well, so to be clear, most mass-produced carbon frames are generally made in, I guess, commonly referred to as a modular monocoque. Um, so basically, you have a whole entire front triangle that's molded as one part, and then you have the seat stays that are often one section, and then the chain stays that are often another section, and that's all kind of glued together, and the joints are overwrapped, that sort of thing. Um, so with with this surveyor, however, you're you're doing more of a multi-piece setup, kind of like, uh, I guess, similar to like Envy or Pursuit, or like you mentioned, Colnago, Mike. Um, so how many different parts are there to uh, a bridge frame before it's all joined together? Uh, yeah, we've got about uh, anywhere between 10 and 12 different parts. Uh, the, the big benefit, I mean, I guess, as Mike said, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make these and how to make them uh, the best possible that they could be, but also knowing that we're building them locally uh, with a startup budget. Uh, and that that really led us to point to, I guess we colloquially call it kind of a tube and lug, but it's not really that. It's, you know, it's tube tube to overwrap type, type uh, methodology. Uh, so I guess the first reason why we chose that was, uh, was cost. So we don't have to uh, manufacture these massive molds per size. So basically, if you have five sizes, you need five of these gigantic molds. Uh, they get very, very expensive, uh, take a long time to do. And then you're kind of stuck with this really expensive big mold if you don't like your design or you need to change something. Uh, so for us, it was it was cost and also de-risking. So doing it in smaller pieces allowed us to deal with a smaller piece of material, uh, easier to machine in-house, and also easier to say, we don't like that we want to change the head tube uh, and do it in two to three days. Uh, so with our in-house CNC capabilities, it literally takes us, you know, after the engineering's done. So not including that, uh, you know, two to three days to make a mold set, uh, which is an unbelievable advantage uh, when, you know, speed to market is, is, is quite the, uh, quite the priority. Uh, so secondly, it's also 
being able to handle the molds. So those molds, when you do a monocoque, are, are very, very heavy. Uh, so you need a whole bunch of different types of machinery just to move it around, uh, which we wanted to avoid. We wanted to just have very easy pieces to work with, uh, work with them one at a time, prove them out one at a time, test them one at a time, uh, and not be full committed to, to a front triangle, let's say. Uh, and then the third uh, point would be scrap rate. So uh, I don't know if you've ever visited a, a factory across seas, but many of them literally have piles of, of bikes on the on their roof uh, of bikes that just didn't come out of the mold properly. Uh, so it's a fundamental fact with with carbon. It's always a risk when you're making a part and and what's called popping that part out of the mold that there's some drift uh, or some warpage. Uh, that could occur. And that is way more likely if you have a bigger, more complex part that you're making at once. And if that is your full front triangle, you just have to toss it. There's literally nothing you could do with it. Uh, we can't afford locally to have that kind of scrap rate. So for us, it was uh, the best idea to say, let's build it in pieces. And if we do have a scrap part, we, we scrap one part, you know, that might be 80 bucks, not 100 bucks or whatever compared to the whole frame. Um, so it should, in the end, drastically decrease our scrap rate. Uh, and there is a fourth uh, reason is we can actually uh, start making all of our common parts. So each each uh, size that we have has some unique elements, mostly the head tube and the seat tube cluster. Almost everything else is, is shared. So we can load up all of the shared components, basically store them there. And then we have uh, a clean room here. Actually, it's right, uh, right in front of me. Uh, where we cut all of our raw material. So we have a CNC cutting machine that cuts all of that material. And so just for example, our, our head tube alone has over 70 pieces of individual unidirectional carbon pieces in the head tube. Uh, so we have a machine that has to cut all of those out um, and it actually labels them to where it is on our laminate schedule so that we can uh, basically just put them where the directions say. But the nice thing is we can kick cut all of those in advance and put them in our freezer. So we have all of our common components that we can make at all times. And then as soon as an order comes in, first, let's say a size 57, we can hop into our freezer, grab a, a plastic bag that's sealed that has all of the parts already pre-cut uh, for that size 57 and just make that head tube and then bond it together. And so it really drastically increases or sorry, decreases the amount of time that it takes to to, to make a frame. And that definitely, James, is was in our thinking is, you know, as, as a dealer, one of my frustrations with, um, well, lead times in general in the industry, but uh, especially smaller brands is, you know, you're usually talking about three, four, six months or more um, to get a custom carbon bike ordered. And by using this kind of more modular approach, and as Frank said, our ability to pre-cut or even pre-mold uh, certain parts ahead of time, we're hoping we can drastically reduce those lead times. So once we're up to production, uh, our goal is, you know, someone orders a frame set, we're delivering it in a matter of weeks, not in a matter of months. So, uh, so that was certainly a, a key factor in terms of the manufacturability as well. So how, yeah, has James, Bridge I delivered add... any bikes yet? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Frank. Oh yeah, sorry. I don't know if uh, <clears throat> if we're talking too much here, but uh, uh, I was going to say one of uh, the typical line that I say, and it goes back to why we wanted to do everything in house too, is is is, and I guess my metal experience in the past, it's car composites is fundamentally different than than cutting metal. Uh, we've mentioned our CNC a lot, and it's a fantastic machine. But when you cut into metal, the end the end product you have a unique shape, but the end product is still metal. 
Whereas with composites, you're, you're making the material and the part at the same time. And the immense amount of control that you have to have over that is, is, is actually kind of, kind of, uh, let's just say unique. Uh, and it's one of the focuses that we have here. And so we have this clean room, temperature control, humidity control, dust controlled, uh, because if I were to sit outside in our main shop here and make a part in the middle of winter, and then eight months later, make that same part in the middle of summer, that part's going to be fundamentally different. It's going to weigh differently. It's going to perform differently. It's not going to be the same part. And again, that goes back to making the material and the part at the same time. So we uh, adamantly control our environment to make sure that every single part that is pumping out of this facility is the same part uh, as we designed it. And like I said, there's almost 70 pieces of, uh, of material just in the head tube. And all of those pieces are, are designed to be where they're supposed to be at that exact spot to transfer transfer the forces down and down or across uh, whatever tube that we want those forces to go into. So it's very very thought out in that way, and especially as you know with bikes, very weight sensitive. You can't just generically throw fabric around and hope that you you can ride a bike. You have to make sure that it comes in at a reasonable and competitive weight. Uh, so all of those factors uh, uh, go into uh, that the quality control there of our processes. Cool. Okay. Um, so are they? Are there any disadvantages to making something this way versus a more typical modular monocoque? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would say the disadvantage, I mean, if I had all the money in the world uh, and all I could buy all the machines in the world and I was, you know, I had a, 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 what do you call it, a crystal ball and I could see into the future and was unbelievably confident with our product choices and shapes and design and everything. Uh, I would say monocoque is probably a pretty nice way to go. Uh, once you're once you're up and running, you know you make you make a part and it pops out and you got a front triangle. I mean that that sounds pretty fun. Whereas right now, you know we're every single part we have to bond together, uh, which is which is a pretty high labor intensive part of the process. Uh, so I would say that would be the drawback. But at the same time, that's just how we have to do it now. It's how we want to do it. Uh, I think we'll learn way more about how we're designing bikes, how they go together. Uh, I think we'll have uh, way more, uh, I would say, transparency into how the bike is made uh, in terms of handing it off to the customer and knowing that that joint is awesome, knowing that that, that tube is on right, knowing that there's no warpage, all of that stuff will have that, that degree of confidence. Uh, but I would say that would be the only downside is, is maybe the way that we're doing it is a bit more labor intensive. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can control that, that quality that much better. And then with fewer parts, would you theoretically be able to, would you theoretically have kind of more structural efficiency in terms of the amount of material you're using? Like, could you, could you theoretically make a lighter bike by molding them in fewer pieces? Like you know, we mentioned the specialized Athos a while ago, um, and specialized hasn't gone into a whole lot of detail into how that thing's made. Um, but uh, obviously structural efficiency is a super, super high priority for that thing. Cause I think the lightest model is what, like 595 grams or something like that. I mean, could you theoretically build something that light using this sort of multi-piece sort of arrangement or would there be too much material overlap? No, I think you could. I mean, the overlap is, is, is nothing. I mean, it's literally, I don't even know what the grams would be, but it's so light. I mean, we've got one layer of, of, of unidirectional carbon going over the wraps. Uh, the wraps are just there for aesthetics. Uh, so that's actually bonded together uh, with, with very, very high grade epoxy. And that, that's what provides the, the, the bond strength. The rest, the, the overwrap is really just for aesthetics. Um, 
And so I, I would assume that anything is possible. It might be a bit harder because you've got a bit more glue, I guess, on the joints. Uh, when you're talking about something that that's, that is that light, everything matters. But I'm sure we could get close. I mean, our, our prototype weight right now in our size 57 is 830 grams. Um, that's unpainted, no fork. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's just our first go at it where we haven't even, you know, iterated on, on the laminate schedule yet. Uh, so I don't want to put, I guess I just put that out there, but that's not what we're putting in our marketing uh, as of right now, because things might change once we start testing things. But, uh, I guess in short, I think it is possible. I think the benefits to monocoque could provide some weight savings, but I guess in, in the all road category, I don't think it matters that much. Um, one of the downsides to, to monocoque is actually because you're molding it all at once. If you remember, we we're talking about the bags or bladders, you can't have one bladder or one bag that's best suited for the size of your seat stays versus the size of your chain stays to the size of your down tube to the size of your top tube. So you're basically as far as I understand it, and someone can feel free to fact check me on this, of course, uh, you can't optimize your compaction when you're doing it that way because your bag can't be multiple different sizes uh, throughout that monocoque form. Whereas our bags and, and our bladders are specifically formed for the size of the tube every single time. So it increases that compaction, which means you could possibly use less material or, or the ratio between epoxy and carbon would be that much better because that compaction is that much more efficient. Cool. Okay. Um, it, it sounds like you're still working out some stuff with the, with these bikes. Cause, cause if, if I'm under, understanding correctly, you're not quite in production yet, right? No, we, uh, we aren't, we're very, very close. So we have actually just bonded together our first frame last week, uh, which seems uh, not as far along as it actually is because we've been making parts for the last six months. So all of the parts have been individually made, cut apart, uh, iterated on, laminate improved, our processes have been improved. So each part that's on there is much further along than just saying, oh yeah, we just have one bike. Uh, so the one bike is actually quite far ahead. Uh, so we're using the bike that we just made uh, to actually be a show bike. So we are going to the Envy uh, Grodio uh, next week actually with it. So that'll be the first time that we show the bike. Uh, so we won't be testing this bike uh, that we just made, but we're already making more parts. Uh, we actually just have to make a bottom bracket right now to get, uh, to get another one done. Uh, and that will be starting. We will start to test that. And we have our own in-house testing capabilities, uh, for the ISO 4210, I guess the standards for bike frames. So we'll be doing that in-house, but we'll also be sending it, uh, uh out of house for third party certification as well. Um, speaking of layup schedules and, and iterating, uh, different parts, how are you going through the process of figuring out nuances like ride quality and like torsional stiffness and bottom bracket stiffness and all that others, like all those intangibles, I shouldn't even say intangibles, but all, all those sort of, uh, small little details that oftentimes make a bike what it is. Um, so how are you figuring that out? I mean, are you, are you basically just sort of experimenting and then kind of building something and then riding it and then kind of seeing how it goes? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess a bit of both. So, so, the fundamental test that you have to pass as a, as a frame builder is the ISO 4210 stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of those are, are pretty basic tests. And the most important ones are kind of falling mass tests on your fork and, you know, test your head tube and, and whatnot. So there, there's some critical ones there that you just have to pass, period. Uh, and that has really 
I shouldn't say nothing to do with comfort, but that's not going to tell you how, how, how much compliance that you have and how, how it feels, you know, how the bike feels, uh, under your butt and on your shoulders and all, and all that. So we'll be doing all of the, the normal tests to make sure that the, the, the bike is more than safe to ride. And then it really is just saying, Hey guys, we, we built five bikes here. Yak has, has ridden, uh, sorry, Yak is Mike. Uh, we call him Yak for short. Uh, uh, you know, he's ridden hundreds of bikes. We give him a model, give my, you know, give other people uh, a model to test out, get their reports. Obviously we'll be riding them. And then you, you really do uh, lean on those comments. And then also obviously the, the vast experience of uh, Thanos, who was a Cervelo engineer as well. And Richard, uh, who was also an engineer there too, of just saying, well, we know how to affect those changes while still passing those tests. Uh, so a lot of that is yes, just, just, the feel of the bike after you've passed those basic tests and then also leaning on the experience of the team that we have. And that's part of the reason, James, we were not, you know, to go back to the ethos, they were trying to build the lightest road bike on the market. So, you know, you mentioned the manufacturability side, but even, you know, their tube shapes, they've publicly admitted they kept them very kind of round and simple to, uh, to ease the manufacturing burden and, and, build it as light as possible. Um, we were, we were not so hung up on trying to hit a target weight that was industry leading. We wanted to create something that had a more well-rounded kind of body. So, you know, something that was stiff, uh, slightly aerodynamic or had some aero features. Um, but then obviously had the compliance that we're looking for. So, uh, some of that is the initial engineering, you know, just tube shaping, um, the fact that we're using a around 27.2 seat post, a decent amount of top tube slope to ensure seat post exposure for compliance, um, ultra thin seat stays in our design, our seat stays wrap kind of around the, uh, the seat tube and kind of join the top tube to get a little more vertical compliance at that point as well. Um, but then as Frank said, after the fact, in terms of laminate, there's still lots of room to tune the ride quality. And because right now we're uh, relatively, uh, you know, we're quite far ahead in terms of our, our weight goals, um, that gives us room to iterate over the coming months and, and play with laminate schedule and, uh, and affect ride quality and stiffness um, in that way. And, uh, and just talking, as Frank said, to Richard and Thanos, uh, you know, we think uh, we're at a really good starting point, but obviously once we start riding the bike and, and iterating, uh, we'll, we'll learn more and, and the ability to, to make changes, build a new bike, ride it within a couple of weeks uh, allows us to, to really uh, get into the nuance of ride quality and stiffness and, and make sure the bike performs the way we want it to. Uh, for us, ride quality is definitely high up on the list um, and, and, and it seems to be confirmed by initial customer surveys that, you know, uh, the quality of the, of the finish and ride quality are, are a lot higher up on the list for most people than aerodynamic stiffness, you know, the typical, uh, marketing, uh, talking points, uh, that most new bikes have. So obviously we care about aero stiffness, all the other performance attributes, but, uh, ultimately building a bike that rides phenomenally is, is really high up on our list of priorities. Um, 
One thing that I found pretty striking is that if I'm understanding correctly, you all are building your own fork as well, right? You're not buying an off-the-shelf fork, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, now, forks are typically one of the most difficult carbon fiber composite structures that you can find in the bike world right now in terms of how strong they have to be and the stiffness requirements and how light they're still supposed to be, all that sort of thing. Um, not to mention the spatial constraints of what you have to fit into this pretty small area. So why why build your own fork instead of using something that is off the shelf and already done? Like It just seems like a, a pretty big lift. Sure. Yeah, it is. Um, it was something we thought long and hard about. Uh, I guess it, the decision really had multiple factors. Uh, the first was just purely functional um, that we looked across the market and there really wasn't a fork out there that we were happy with, um, meaning uh, something that had 40, 42 millimeter tire clearance, uh, fully internal uh, cable routing, but then also designed for um, a non-proprietary headset standard, meaning that the fork would have to be drilled or molded. So, you know, you could run any number of headset options with us. So uh, tire clearance and functionality was first. Uh, second, I guess, was geometry. Uh, we are definitely geometry nerds and, and wanted our uh, trail figure or kind of that's the, you know, your, your steering metric to be pretty linear throughout our size range. And so optimizing our geometries around two unique fork rakes designed for our size range uh, allowed us to really nail the handling of the bike. Um, and then I guess third, you, you touched on it. Um, you know, you can go buy an NV or Columbus or a whiskey fork, but you get what you get in terms of ride quality, stiffness, um, and I've, you know, I've ridden all of those fork brands and would say there are some subtle differences between them. And for us to really dial that combination of stiffness and, and compliance uh, to the level we wanted it was really only possible by creating our own fork and managing our own laminate schedule um, and doing our own in-house testing and iteration. Um, so for all of those reasons, uh, we, we thought it was worth the venture. And, and then I guess the last reason, you know, is we thought it was uh, a worthwhile exercise to push ourselves to produce a component aside from the frame, uh, that there would be new challenges, new lessons learned, and that, uh, you know, we do expect this will lead to further research and development on the component side for future generations, um, whether that's you know, the eventual release of a, an adventure bike or a pure kind of unadulterated road race bike. But that was kind of dipping our toe into potential future component manufacturing. So obviously, you know, essentially a, a high-end carbon facility, uh, there's not a lot of limitations about what we can build. And uh, we didn't want to jump right into doing our own cockpit seat post. You know, we we wanted to to keep the the target focused on the frame set, but, uh, but definitely, uh, we thought it was a good exercise, uh, as we consider future component production down the road. Yeah. And James, mm. I, I guess going back in time to the beginning of, of, of chatting about this too, about why we started and, and whatnot. I mean, Mike and I have chatted about this before. There's, there's a certain amount of, uh, naivety 
uh, that's essential, I think, in starting something. Uh, you know, if, if, if you knew everything, you might not do it. Uh, and, you know, coming from a bit more of a, of a I guess, a tech background, in, in my mind, if you're going to make something, you make it yours. Uh, and so that was kind of the big, the big push as well as all the factors that, that Mike mentioned. It was just, well, why not? I mean, we're making the frame. Let's, let's make this other major component that ha that's carbon as well. Uh, and so it really was just a, uh, you know, an aspect of let's just do it. And, uh, and, uh, it's, so far it's, it's turning out fantastic. I mean, we made a fork that we're, we're very, very happy with that matches our design too. So we're, we're very obsessed with design ID. Uh, and so it, it matches features of the lines that we have on the other aspects of the bike, uh, that we just really wanted. And, uh, and so, uh, for better or worse, uh, we're down that path and, uh, so far it's, it's, it's going great. Cool. Um, Mike, you mentioned routing earlier, um, and one thing you said quite early on is that fully internal cable routing is something that your customers, a lot of them are asking for. And, and, and at this point, almost expect, I think, to a degree. Um, but it sounds like you are, it sounds like you've designed the, the bike to, to run a, a, a pretty wide range of different ways of doing that. So how exactly are you doing that up top? Like what, what, what does the headset look like? What does the routing look like? And that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. But, I mean, I'll, I'll address the elephant in the room first, which is we, everyone knows mechanics hate internal cable routing. Um, that's, that's the reality. There's more work involved. Uh, you know, it's, it's more finicky. You got to potentially rebuild a bike if you're adjusting the cockpit. Uh, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot not to like, but, uh, I see it every day in my shop. You know, if, if someone has the option of, an externally routed or a fully internal system, I think probably 80 or 90% of customers prefer the fully internal system from just an aesthetic standpoint, aerodynamic standpoint. And the fact that most people are not servicing their own bikes, they're taking it to a mechanic to do the work. And we did think a, a fully internal system was what the market wanted and, and where we wanted to go. Uh, but um, again, we, we really are as allergic as possible to fully proprietary systems or, or, you know, requiring customers to buy our bar stem and, and no other. And for that reason, we wanted to design it around the newer oversized kind of head to bearing standards, but uh, to create it in such a way that it can run any of those systems. So FSA, ACR, SCR, you know, the NV or ceramic speed uh, oversized headset systems. Um, so essentially you can run fully internal through the bar stem, or you can run a traditional external bar and using the FSA SCR system, the cables will just enter through the top cap. Um, so essentially we wanted, you know, to be able to offer cockpit options from FSA, Vision, Pro, NV, and so we designed it so you can use really any of those headset systems. Uh, and by uh, molding or, you know, we're molding it by theoretically or drilling a hole in the fork, um, you, you allow people to run kind of any system that, that they choose to. So I guess that, you know, it speaks kind of to who we are as a brand that's trying to look at more cutting edge technology, but in a classic way and, in, in, you know, could we deliver it in a, a non-proprietary kind of formula? So, you know, if, if you have someone who just wants to move all their old parts over onto the new bike, 
Um, you can run the external style system uh, or for, you know, the majority of customers who are getting the bike built from scratch, we're, you know, we're likely going to run full internal systems uh, for those customers. But uh, we, we wanted to, it to be as limitless as possible. So you can run uh, one by or two by electronic systems uh, or one by mechanical. Uh, we're not offering two by mechanical. And uh, that was a little bit of a an engineering manufacturing decision. And to be honest, looking at the market and, you know, with SRAM rival access and Shimano, you know, likely coming out with an electronic group at the lower end in the future. Um, we're just seeing fewer customers run, running to buy mechanical. And, and so decided, uh, you know, we were willing to punt on that option to keep the design a little lighter and a little more modern, but uh, but yeah, we wanted, uh, you know, we wanted it to be as accessible as possible and not to stick people with a proprietary cockpit that they might not be excited about. So that's, that's essentially how the cable routing is, is designed on the bike. Okay. Fair enough. And, uh, I, I think, uh, I, I think you, you both have listened to nerd alert a fair bit in the past. And I think our, our positions on the whole internal routing thing is are, are pretty clear, <laughs> but we're also like, kind of like most of us are grumpy old mechanics sort of thing. So, um, but you know, I, Mike, I completely agree <laughs> that the reality is most people, especially at this end of the market do want and expect fully internal routing. And like you said, the reality is the vast majority of them are not working on their own stuff. So, um, you know, hopefully people are, uh, at least becoming more accustomed or better educated as far as what some of the maintenance costs might be depending on where they live, especially if they're in a wetter climate. Um, but overall, I mean, I think, realistically, as much as I personally do not love internal cable routing, if I were to start my own bike company right now, that's probably the way I would have to go if I actually expected to sell any bikes. Um, so speaking of bikes, and we've talked a lot about uh, kind of like some technical details and it's kind of like some conceptual stuff, that sort of thing. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about is how much this thing costs. So what, what are we looking at here? Well, so uh, cost was important to us. And again, if you look at the kind of you know, the, the world's leading kind of bespoke builders, you're usually looking at a significant premium over, uh, you know, uh, the, your bigger brands. And um, Frank and I were both pretty committed to trying to build, uh, you know, what we hope is a world-class bike and do it domestically, but at a price that competes with Asian manufactured bikes. And so, you know, it all really started with the quality of our people and our process and trying to build the best product possible under one roof. Um, you know, we started, as Frank mentioned, uh, this project probably about six months before COVID. And, you know, you're, you've seen kind of, uh, I guess it's only further clarified uh, supply chain challenges, rising shipping costs, uh, factory shutdowns, and then you know, the softer costs, potential environmental and social reasons that domestic manufacturing makes sense. And so, you know, when you take those, all of those costs into consideration and then add to the fact that we have an incredibly skilled uh, labor force uh, in North America, but in, as Frank mentioned, Toronto specifically, and I think you've got a rising customer base in in North America and the world who who do believe in domestic production and and care about where their products are being made uh 
that, um, you know, we thought it was just the right combination for who we were as a brand and, and ultimately for creating the best product uh, that we could. And, uh, you know, for me and, and Frank, it's interesting to note, you know, if you look at some of those bigger brands, uh, 3T, Bianchi, Pirelli have all brought production back to Italy in the last six months or so with some pretty big announcements about manufacturing facilities. Um, and those are brands that are already, you know, deeply embedded in overseas production. So, you know, if they're making the decision to, to reshore and bring it back domestically, um, I think it just, you know, really drives home the point that there are pretty huge advantages to doing it locally. Um, and, and for us, since we were starting from scratch anyways, it was, uh, it was always going to happen here. And, uh, and so we're, we're pretty proud that, that we're almost there, that we're about to get a bike out the door and that, and that we feel like we've done it in, in a way that will produce a better product, uh, at the end, but to go back to your price point. Um, so frame set price is 5,000 Canadian, uh, which is around $3,900 us right now with current exchange rates. So, you know, that's, I think about the, the best priced domestically made carbon bike, uh, around and, um, and you know, that, really speaks to who we want to be as a brand again is we don't want to be you know just a super high-end bespoke builder we want to be a viable brand that can create products that do rival those of the big brands um and you know have the quality of those bespoke guys but at a much more affordable price point so you're you're not having to make the decision that yes i'm going to pay 40 percent more to have it built here but you know we're trying to make the de decision easy for you and say, well, I can get it for about the same price and have it built here with a lifetime warranty and with a North American labor force. Um, so, you know, for us, Hey, we know, you know, our complete bikes are starting, I guess, around 6,500 us. Um, that's, you know, that's still a reasonably high price point for a bicycle. And, um, and so we, we were pretty committed to trying to stick to a value oriented proposition, uh, and really sell the products on the merits of what it is and who we are. And, you know, we're, we're not asking, uh, that you should feel that, uh, you need to pay more and treat us as a charity, um, that we're going to build something awesome and, and, and that it should compete with, with, you know, who's out there right now. Um, to put that into some context, around four thousand US is is kind of roughly in between like a like an S Works level or a pro level frame that Specialized would sell. So I think comparatively speaking, that's really quite competitive, especially all things considered. Um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of that uh, you're able to do, uh, you know, despite the fact that you're doing stuff uh, domestically in Canada, despite the fact that you've got some pretty high level experienced people working there. Um, but overall, I mean, Bridge is a is a small outfit. You have what, like six employees or something, seven, something like that. Yeah. Um, we've, oh, sorry. Yeah. We've got, uh, eight full-time employees now. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like you have like massive, massive overhead and that sort of thing. You're like, like you said, Mike, you're not sponsoring a pro tour team. You're like you're not, you don't see ads everywhere. Um, like I just saw the other day that this is, this is actually brilliant marketing by specialized. Apparently they are advertising e-bikes on the handles of gas pumps now. <laughs> um, which is absolutely super, super brilliant and savvy. Anyway, um, yeah. 
So overall, I think it's really admirable that you're that you're not pricing these things as some sort of like ultra premium niche boutique thing. Um, but I still wonder in terms of a business, you know, I think we've all heard the saying that, you know, the best way to make a million dollars in the bike industry is to start out with two, right? So, um, what, <laughs> what would bridge consider to be success business-wise? Like what are the long-term goals? Like how, what, what are the plans for, I guess, keeping this thing viable, uh, in the long run? Well, maybe I'll give you my quick answer and then Frank can jump in. But, uh, I mean, the less, it, it's not a sexy answer, James, but ultimately, you know, I, I guess we're all about creating an incredible quality product and experience for our end users. So, um, you know, creating a fantastic product and a sense of community that our customers want to be part of, uh, I think is kind of our first measure of success and, you know, focusing on the initial product launch and the quality of the bike is, is really where we're at right now. Um, you know, we do have internal sales expectations for the next five years um, based around, number one, a strong growing network of local premium dealers and fitters. So we definitely want to be in bike shops and not just a consumer direct brand. Uh, so we've already got uh, 10 or 12 uh, really respected bike shops signed on as dealers and, and looking to grow that network. Um, of course, combined with a really good direct-to-consumer experience for those who don't have a local dealer uh, nearby. Um, but we want to be a viable, growing, healthy, mid-sized brand with a variety of products. Uh, likely not far off in the future, you'll see an adventure model, potentially e-bike options in our model range, uh, possibly more of a pure, unadulterated road race model if we feel like our customers are asking for that. Um, but essentially, you know, expanding our model lineup, growing our component range, potentially eventually doing manufacturing work for other brands within the industry, which we've already had some demand for. I think all of that's possible and probably in that order. Uh, but at our core, we, we really just want to do things in a, in a fresh kind of authentic way, taking the best thinking from from across our team, the real life demands and, and kind of asks of our customers and, you know, hopefully pushing the cycling industry forward in our own little way by creating really well-imagined, precisely manufactured carbon products, um, you know, kind of at the core of what we do and, and not following trends, but, you know, creating products that we really believe in, in terms of what they're meant to do for, for our customers. Um, and, and, you know, that's why we were pretty excited to start with an all road bike, kind of a category that we think is underrepresented in the bike industry, um, rather than just say, okay, everyone, you know, everyone's starts with a road race model. So let's start with that. You know, we, we decided to build the bike we, we really wanted and, and the bike we thought our customers, uh, would be super excited about. Uh, rather than just, you know, following a script for how you launch a bike business. So that's why I kind of joke the, if you build it, they will come, you know, at our core, it's, it's, you know, think through the design and engineering on a deep level and create products that are unique and, and special and, and super high quality. And, and we think we'll, we'll find the right customers with that formula. 
Cool. How far out are these things? Like, when will someone actually be able to like really have one to ride? Well, so our our new website is open, so we are taking pre-orders, um, and we we've already pre-sold a, a, a fair number of frames, which is exciting and and hopefully a good sign for where we're going. Um, so on that website, we've got a complete uh, full custom build configurator. Um, which actually links to real inventory that's either in our hands or or promised to be shipping soon. So uh, so long story short, we're expecting to get production bikes out the door later this summer and into the fall. So uh, we don't have a, a, a date for production bikes to leave. I would expect in the next six to 10 weeks. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, we're... We're open for business now, taking pre-orders, and and likely August or so is when the first production bikes will start going out the door. Um, likely starting with uh, our three biggest sizes, and then the two smaller sizes uh, coming out a few weeks later, just based on our tooling. Um, but we're uh, we're really close to uh, to being ready to go. So we're we're about two weeks away for from showing off our first pre-production bike in person. And, uh, and then from there, we're just going to be moving towards uh, production. Uh, I don't want to say as fast as possible. We've built in a couple months of kind of testing and iterating and uh, seeing what the, those tests reveal. But we're expecting uh, later this summer to have bikes out the door. Yeah, and James, uh, I was just going to add to the success of the business and, and more so going back to the start of of how we envisioned starting Bridge was, was very, uh, I guess, from, from both of our experiences and, and definitely, uh, from mine as well of, of, you know, setting out the business as well thought out as possible, d- working out all the numbers to the nitty gritty, passing those numbers around to people who know numbers a lot better than, than, than we do. And, and, uh, you know, getting it scrutinized as much as possible and, and iterating even on our business plan, uh, uh, a ton of times. Uh, and so we, uh, from the very get-go decided to go a bit more of the tech tech company route of of create the business plan uh get the facility going start to raise money uh and so we are you know we are well funded uh we do have investors and 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 so the we're not disillusioned with just uh, just a dream we know that there's a hard reality to building uh, a business here that has to make financial sense and and in our minds we've created the best plan possible for that we know that most plans don't go uh, as 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 you like them to but you know we do have uh, the team embedded and a team of advisors and a team of uh, shareholders at this point that are, are super supportive and and uh, and along for the ride so to speak and and uh, so so far everything's going quite well uh, uh, and to plan. So hopefully that's, that, that stays the course and, and, uh, and, and we keep going uh, in the direction that we're heading right now. Cool. Well, that, that's all really quite exciting. Uh, I think I'm really eager to see how this all pans out as, as I'm sure you are. Um, the, the bike certainly looks good, at least from what I can see on paper, everything sounds pretty, uh, everything sounds pretty appealing. It definitely sounds very kind of like on trend and, and uh, kind of like what you were saying, Mike, like you're building the bike that, uh, a lot of us really want to ride and own, uh, and that that seems very apt. So yeah, I guess uh, in the meantime, for people listening here, uh, I guess head over to bridgebikeworks.com, check out the surveyor. Uh, and in the meantime, Frank and Mike, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for thanks for being on Nerd Alert today. Thanks a lot, James. Had a great time, and can't wait to get you uh, a bike in your hands in the near future.
Yeah, thanks, James. It was uh, really nice to meet you uh, digitally here, and hopefully uh, I can see you at uh, one of the shows that we'll be at coming up. Sounds good. Thanks again. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you whenever we see you, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, and for the folks listening, thanks as always for listening to Nerd Alert. Uh, as always, if you haven't already subscribed or left us a rating or review, please do so. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll have some big news to share next week. A nice little update on what we've got going on at Cycling Tips. So make sure you stay tuned. And in the meantime, we will see you next week for another episode of Nerd Alert. Thanks again. Thanks again.